Welcome to Classics Unlocked, opening up the stories behind classical music, brought to you by Universal Music and Classics Direct. I'm Graham Abbott. We opened with The Sound of Music by Schubert, but it could equally be the sound made when opening a can of worms. This program is called Unfinished Symphonies, and in tackling this subject, symphonies left unfinished by their composers, we do indeed risk opening many cans of worms. It seems almost every music lover has some theory about why some composers didn't finish certain pieces, and not just symphonies. Bach left the final fugue of the Art of Fugue incomplete. Mozart finished neither of his two greatest pieces of sacred music, and Haydn didn't finish his last string quartet. Of course, in many cases, the composer was interrupted by death, as in the case of Mozart's Requiem. But in many other instances, a work was simply put aside and never completed, and often we have no idea why. In this program, I'm going to explore what are probably the three most famous examples of unfinished symphonies. Quite coincidentally, they're all by German-speaking composers whom we nowadays would regard as Austrian. And they're all among the most important and gifted composers in the Western tradition, Franz Schubert, Anton Bruckner and Gustav Mahler. Franz Schubert died at the hideously early age of 31 in 1828. He'd been composing since his childhood, and even in his mid-teens was writing music, mostly songs, still regarded as among the greatest masterpieces of their kind. And while his more than 600 songs on their own would have ensured him a permanent place in the pantheon of the greatest creative minds, he made equally sublime contributions in the areas of chamber music, choral music, and solo piano music as well. In orchestral music, though, Schubert had mixed results. His early symphonies, written in his mid-teens, show great talent but not a lot of originality. They emulate the late symphonies of Haydn and Mozart. No bad thing, of course, but it wasn't until his fifth symphony of 1816, written when he was still only 19, that he started to show a deeply effective means of aligning the classical symphonic form with his romantic, lyrical gifts. In 1818, just after he turned 21, Schubert completed his sixth symphony, which draws more strongly on Beethoven as a model. But then, over the next ten years, he started at least five symphonies, none of which were completed. Not until his final year, 1828, did he complete another symphony, the one now usually called the Great C Major Symphony and traditionally numbered as his ninth. So what happened between the 6th and ninth symphonies if none of these works was completed? In the traditional numbering system, the work called Schubert's 7th symphony is a symphony in E major which was largely completed in a sketch score but never fully orchestrated. It has since been fleshed out and completed by others, but we have no idea why Schubert left it incomplete. Between the 6th symphony and this one, there were a number of other symphonies sketched but left unrealised. The traditional 8th symphony is one of the most famous works in the repertoire, now universally known as Schubert's Unfinished Symphony. Written in 1822, Schubert fully completed the first two movements and started the third. This third movement was sketched out in short score, but only two pages of orchestrated score were completed before work stopped. There are no sketches for the finale. 
Sketches exist for yet another symphony, again unrealised, before work started on the great C major symphony in 1825. Some writers in the past have theorised that there is another missing symphony from this time, known as the Gmunden Gastein Symphony, because of references to it in the Schubert documents. But most scholars today are of the opinion that this is the great C major symphony and not some other mysterious work. Recent editions of Schubert's music now renumber the symphonies, rather sensibly in my opinion, including only the works that are actually performable. This means the unfinished is called number 7, while the great C major is number 8. But the traditional numbering will take a long while to be supplanted, and for now it's likely you'll encounter both numbering systems at some stage. Schubert's famous unfinished symphony is usually performed with just the two completed movements. The first movement is a stunning advance on every level from the composer's previously completed symphony, the sixth. In the intervening four years, he'd somehow found his own voice on the orchestral plane. He'd long had his own voice in other genres, but now he found a perfect synthesis of the lyrical and the formal. Stunningly, he did this in a way totally different to the directions taken by Beethoven, who was still alive and actively composing at the time. Depending on the tempo, the first movement of the unfinished can take around a quarter of an hour. 
the second movement can go almost as long. This shows Schubert thinking on a larger symphonic scale than he had ever considered up till this point. Yet again, the results are so totally unlike anything Beethoven, who had written his first eight symphonies by this time, would achieve. The second movement creates a lyrical yet timeless mood. In 1823, the Graz Music Society gave Schubert an honorary diploma. As a gesture of thanks, he sent the score for these two completed movements to his friend, Anselm Hüttenbrenner, who was a member of the society. Hüttenbrenner did nothing with the score, and for 42 years told no one of its existence. It wasn't until 1865 37 years after Schubert's death, that he finally told someone about it. In this case, the respected conductor Johann von Herbeck. Herbeck conducted the first ever performance of the two completed movements in Vienna in December of that year, adding, incongruously, the finale of Schubert's early third symphony to round it off. The score Schubert gave to Hüttenbrenner also contained two further pages, comprising the orchestral score of the first 30 bars of the third movement. But at this point, the manuscript breaks off. Unknown to Hüttenbrenner, 
Schubert's brother had in his possession the composer's piano score sketches for the symphony, which, in addition to the sketch score for the first two movements, contains almost all the third movement as well. This has since been orchestrated by others, and the completion of the renowned Schubert scholar Brian Newbold is used in the recording from which the extracts in this program are drawn. Nothing in Schubert's hand exists to indicate his intentions for the finale of this work, assuming he even had any. Newbold and others believe it's possible that the B minor entr'acte in Schubert's music for the play Rosamunda, written the following year, was originally the finale of the unfinished symphony. Superficially, the music could fulfil that role, but there is no evidence beyond the circumstantial which specifically indicates this was what happened. Many scholars vehemently reject this idea. We heard the opening of this movement at the start of the program, hence my reference to a can of worms. The question has often been asked, why didn't Schubert complete this piece, seeing he'd already written so much? The answer to this we can only guess at. Some scholars suggest that Schubert felt uneasy about the fact that all three movements, the two completed ones and the unfinished third, are all in triple time. Others point to the possibility that he was distracted by other projects, notably the composition of the Mammoth Wanderer Fantasy, written in late 1822. But again, we really don't know. We can only be grateful that he lived to complete his next and final symphony shortly before his death, the monumental Great C Major Symphony. In 1824, four years before Schubert's death in Vienna, Anton Bruckner was born in Linz, 180 kilometres to the west. Like Schubert, Bruckner trained to be a schoolteacher, but there the similarities end. Bruckner had a very long life and was a renowned teacher. He was also one of the foremost organists of his day and regarded as one of the supreme masters of the art of improvisation. As a composer, he was a late starter, not really committing himself to composition until his late 30s. Bruckner today is remembered primarily as a composer of 11 large-scale symphonies. There are nine officially numbered symphonies and two earlier ones which the composer regarded as student works and not fit to be part of his official output. In addition to the symphonies, Bruckner expressed his devout and unwavering Catholic faith in a series of sacred works, three masses, a Te Deum and other large-scale vocal works, and a series of beautiful small-scale motets, which are now beloved of choirs the world over. Bruckner's symphonies are on a colossal scale. You can find an overview of all of them in Episode 7 of Classics Unlocked. One hour's duration is normal. Many take longer than that. And nearly all exist in more than one version, reflecting the revisions the composer regularly undertook, sometimes at the behest of others, sometimes of his own volition. Such are the demands made on the listener by these works, and Bruckner was indeed uncompromising when it came to such demands, that in his lifetime and up to the present day there are many who dismiss them out of hand. Johannes Brahms, certainly not a fan, called them symphonic boa constrictors, and Hans Fitzner accused Bruckner of writing the same symphony nine times. On the other hand, Wagner regarded Bruckner as the only composer who measured up to Beethoven. Bruckner adored Wagner's music in return, and it shows. 
Bruckner's Eighth Symphony was composed in the mid-1880s and subjected to extensive revisions over the next few years. He started his Ninth Symphony on the 12th of August 1887, a month before his 63rd birthday. He was still at work on it five years later in 1892 when he broke off to write some vocal works, including the stunning motet Vexilla Regis. On the 30th of November 1894, after more than seven years' work and now aged 70, he completed the third of the symphony's four movements. Following the plan of Beethoven's Ninth, Bruckner's final symphony opens with a large, complex sonata form movement, then places the brisk, powerful scherzo movement second rather than third. This is how the scherzo begins.
third movement is the slow movement, which in the case of Bruckner's Ninth is a vast, timeless musical canvas lasting nearly half an hour. It wasn't until May of 1895, after a pause of six months, that Bruckner, aged 71 and increasingly frail, started work on the finale. He worked at it constantly, as much as his health would allow, for the next 17 months. He's said to have even worked on the sketches on the day he died, the 11th of October 1896, but he left the finale incomplete and not in a performable state. Bruckner himself suspected he might not live to complete the finale and suggested that if this were the case, that his setting of the Te Deum, completed in 1884, should conclude the symphony. While there are strong connections between the Te Deum and the finale of the Ninth, few conductors have acted upon this suggestion. When performed today, it's usual to follow the precedent of Schubert's Unfinished and perform the three completed movements and leave it at that. This means it ends with the vast slow movement, providing a gloriously extended, moving farewell. Here's just a taste of this extraordinary music.
There have been a number of attempts to create a performable version of the finale of Bruckner's Ninth, based on the 560 bars which survive. And while these have been performed, most conductors still prefer to end at the conclusion of the third movement, which is a beautiful and moving tribute to Bruckner and a hint of what might have been had he lived to finish this magnificent musical canvas. When it comes to thinking about symphonies on a huge scale, the name which comes to mind alongside Bruckner's is that of Gustav Mahler. In 1860, the Bohemian village of Kalicht, as it was then known, fell within the borders of the Austrian Empire. Today known as Kalistje, it's within the Czech Republic, but its claim to fame lies in the fact that it was Mahler's birthplace. It's still tiny. In the 2006 census, its population was recorded at just 152, but from these humble origins came one of the most important German-speaking musicians of the late Romantic era. Mahler was known in his lifetime as one of the most important conductors in the world, holding leading posts with the Vienna Court Opera and the New York Philharmonic. But today, he's remembered as the creator of some of the most overwhelming music, in particular his symphonies. Again, I've surveyed all the Mahler symphonies in an earlier instalment of Classics Unlocked. You'll find this in episode 2. Mahler completed nine numbered symphonies, as well as the magnificent Das Lied von der Erde, the Song of the Earth, which he also called a symphony without giving it a number. But Mahler also made substantial progress on a tenth symphony, which was left unfinished at his death in 1911. Like most composers, Mahler's initial work on a piece was done in short score. This is a condensed score over a few staves, much of which could be playable on the piano, which indicates the general musical shape of a work and gives some indication of instrumentation, volume markings and other details. It's designed to enable the composer to get initial ideas on paper quickly and to provide a reminder of details which might later be forgotten. When all the working out is finished in the short score, this is then expanded into a full orchestral score, which provides the final details of who plays what and how. In Mahler's Tenth, a work in five movements, we see this process in extreme detail. The first two movements, an expansive opening adagio and a disturbing scherzo, were completed in full orchestral score, although the second movement requires a few gaps to be filled. The central third movement, called Purgatorio, Purgatory, was completed in short score, but only 30 bars were fully orchestrated. The remaining two movements, a second scherzo and a gigantic slow finale, were completed, but only in the short score. So the short score, comprising 1,945 bars of the entire work in condensed form, gives us the overall shape of the symphony as Mahler intended. What was unfinished was the full orchestral score which fleshed this out. Only two and a bit movements appear in the orchestral score. Many conductors regard the first movement as the only authentic part of Mahler's Tenth and will only perform that movement without any of the completions of the later movements by others. Still other conductors, even those with strong connections to Mahler's music, like the late Sir George Schulte, refuse to perform any part of the piece. The first movement, which lasts for nearly half an hour, 
contains an infamous, shocking chord, which not only seems to portray the composer staring into an abyss of despair, but which on a purely technical level seems to depict the end of tonality itself. The second movement, the first of two scherzo movements in the symphony, is deeply disturbing on many levels. It's an undanceable dance movement, an apparent reaction to Vienna's rejection of Mahler in the form of a decayed, warped waltz.
integral to an understanding of Mahler's 10th is his stormy relationship with his wife, Alma. A gifted composer in her own right, Alma Mahler was the great love of the composer's life, but her affair with the architect Walter Gropius in 1910 provided the impetus and backdrop to the unfinished 10th symphony. Throughout the score, Mahler wrote comments regarding his love for Alma and his fears that she would leave him. The purgatory of the central movement was the horror of discovering the affair. This was originally titled Purgatorio Order Inferno, Purgatory or Hell, the hell being Alma leaving him. But she didn't leave, so Mahler violently crossed out the reference to hell, leaving him in purgatory for the duration. Alma was 19 years younger than the composer. Her earlier affairs, and later ones, were the stuff of legend. She's known to have had liaisons with some of the leading artistic figures of the time. After Mahler's death in 1911, she married Gropius, but they divorced in 1920. She later married the writer Franz Werfel, and they divorced in 1945. Alma lived until 1964, and it wasn't until two years before her death that she permitted all the extant material relating to the Tenth Symphony to be released to scholars. Up to that point, only smaller parts of Mahler's work had been made available. Over the years, there have been many attempts to make this incredible music performable, and there are many versions available. But the one which has garnered the greatest respect is by a team led by the British musicologist Derek Cook. He, along with Bertolt Goldschmidt, Colin Matthews and David Matthews, produced a performing edition of the surviving material, and this provides the best glimpse we'll ever have as to what might have been. The Cook completions have been updated over the years, and there are now three distinct editions, known as Cook 1, 2 and 3. Mahler's tenth in the Cook completion takes about an hour and a quarter in performance, so I can only provide a taste of it here and encourage you to hear it and the other works I've discussed in their entirety on your own. You'll never be the same, I assure you. We'll end this program with the short Purgatorio movement of Mahler's tenth. The recording of Schubert's unfinished symphony I used earlier featured the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields, conducted by Sir Neville Mariner. This came from their recordings of the complete Schubert symphonies, which includes the Brian Newbold completions of a number of the incomplete Schubert symphonies. The recording of Bruckner's Ninth was released in 1965 and featured the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Zubin Mehta. And finally, the recording of Mahler's Tenth in the Cook II completion came from a series of recordings of all the Mahler symphonies made in the 1980s. The orchestra was then known as the Berlin Radio Symphony Orchestra, but in 1993 it changed its name to the German Symphony Orchestra Berlin. The conductor was Ricardo Schaii. My thanks to Tom Ford for the technical production of Classics Unlocked. My name's Graham Abbott. Catch you next time.